the light comes on and then I realize, oh my God, I'm 50 miles from home and I'm out of gas. I have no gas and I have no money and I have no credit. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Before we dig into today's guest, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Well, this past week, I had the awesome experience of taking a 15-foot U-Haul with a car behind it all the way across the country. That's all the way from up here in New England and Boston, all the way down to Austin, Texas. So that was pretty stressful, but we're in Austin now. We have moved into the apartment and actually just spent our first night there. So that's really all I've been doing. Just consume, we're getting moving in. But how about you, Cody? So I had a first for me this past Saturday. I went to my first baby shower. First of all, I didn't know that dudes went to baby showers. And it was actually a baby queue. So it was a barbecue, but basically baby themed. <laughs> Super cool. Congratulations to my friend Brianna on that. But yeah, summer is starting to wind down now. We're going to be moving out of the lake house pretty shortly and moving into that house in Connecticut that I had mentioned a couple episodes ago that we were closing on. So definitely excited for that. Going to do some cosmetic upgrades, hopefully get it tenanted as quickly as possible. It's a three family, so should be a nice little cash flow there starting our real estate investing journey. But that's enough about us, Justin. Before we get into today's guest, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. So pretty recently, I switched over from one of the quote-unquote big wireless providers. You know the companies, they're huge, they typically don't care about their customers too much, and oftentimes they have a bunch of hidden fees and things you don't even know that you're overpaying for. And so, I decided to switch over to Mint Mobile. The activation process was super easy. Once I had all my account information, the transfer process was honestly five minutes. I have the same phone, all my same contacts, everything is exactly the same, but now I'm with Mint Mobile. And one of my favorite things about Mint Mobile is it's one of these newer techie companies. They're basically set up so they can handle everything online. Mint Mobile can save on retail locations and overhead and pass those savings directly to their customers. All their plans come with unlimited talk and text. You can choose the right data plan for you. And you can use your own phone and keep your same number along with all your existing contacts. So if you're looking to cut that monthly cell phone bill down to just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, you can go to mintmobile.com slash show. That's mintmobile.com slash show. So today we have Joe Saul Sihai, who started out on a journey being bad at money like a lot of people out there. He goes to college, gets that Amex card, and starts racking up debt. But then he does actually become a financial planner. Secretly, though, he was not taking his own advice. He was living paycheck to paycheck, even though he was giving out this financial advice. Until one day, a fellow financial advisor in his network decides to just up and quit, who was making tons of money in his 40s to go hike mountains around the world. That really changed Joe's life. He digs into what will become the fire movement following Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman. And then he starts the Stacking Benjamins podcast, which is now wildly successful. I don't want to steal all of Joe's thunder. Take it away, Joe. I was in high school and uh, I was watching one of those morning shows like the Today Show or Good Morning America. And I remember watching this dude on TV. I have no idea who it was now, but I remember watching him and and he, he seemed to have all the answers. Like if you paid your utility bills and in a way that they were the same every month that you'd be able to then save money or 
clipping coupons, you know, the magic of the grocery store. And I thought about how cool that was. That was, I remember the first time that I got interested because in our house, we didn't really talk about money much. So I didn't really think anything of it, but I thought, man, these people that seem to magically know all the little hacks, all the little tricks, they're cool. And then like a lot of people my age, I saw the movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas and that movie where, of course, at the end of it, you know, the, the part nobody wants to talk about, Charlie Sheen goes to jail. <laughs> but, but, but up until then, the fact that they're living the high life, they've got a house on the beach, you know, they're, they're, they're calling in trades to Hong Kong. I'm like, this is the coolest stuff ever. And that was probably, I would say, I would say that was the linchpin for me when it came to Wall Street and investing. So those are two kind of, you know, completely different ends of the spectrum, right? Like one is like something you can kind of think about day-to-day use. One of them is like the PhD level of this stuff. So when did you start kind of applying it to your own life other than just an interest through something you saw? Oh, Justin, that took me forever, man. That took me forever. There's there's one thing to hear about it and to think it's really cool. And there's another thing to think it actually has anything to do with you, right? So early on, I was a mess with money. I mean, I was absolutely horrible. Before I went to college, my parents, whenever they'd have a discussion about money, I, I have a younger brother and sister. One of us would walk in the room while there wasn't even having a discussion about money. It was having a fight. And we'd walk into the room and they would send us right out of the room. Like we never, ever talked about it. Like my parents taught me a lot about hustle, about grind, about being an honest person. But when it came to managing your money, money was a taboo topic. So I, so I go off to college. I go to this military college called the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. And the first week of school, I go into the student union, which was Mark Clark Hall. And when I walk in, American Express has a table there. And there's this huge line of people waiting to go into debt, right? <laughs> Just hoping <laughs> that they can get a beach towel and get their ass in debt. And so I'm like, well, that's a long line. Looks really cool. I got to get into debt too. So I jump in line, signed up. And of course, I'm at a military college, Justin. I can't have a job, right? Yet, a week later, my cool green card comes in the mail. I am all, all of a sudden, I'm an American Express customer. So the first time that we get a weekend away from the Citadel, they actually open up the gates and let us out. I go to North Charleston to the mall with friends of mine. I immediately walk into Nordstrom, you know, because I'm going to shop cheap. Go to Nordstrom. I, I see this mannequin with this cool, like, Duran Duran sweater, this uh, just ugly-ass sweater. And I went and, and bought it all on credit. I couldn't afford it. It was super expensive. But, hey, I got my green card, so that's awesome. And then I circled back with my friends and went to this really cool upscale restaurant called Ruby Tuesdays. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of it. Just am- oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing upscale place. Salad bar, the whole deal. Unlimited soft drinks, just, just a dream. And I think there were eight of us. And at the end of lunch, I whipped out that bad boy and showed it to everybody because I was the cool kid with plastic and said, lunch is on me. No idea, by the way, how the hell I'm going to pay this. Not even thinking about how I'm going to pay it. And so I go about my business Month goes by, all of a sudden I go to get the mail and I can't believe it, but I got to pay for this stuff. Like I get this, I'm like, oh cool, American Express sending me a little love note. Open it up, not a love note, it's you owe us a bunch of money. So I did what any smart person would do, you know, thinking strategically. I called my mom and I said, mom, we got a problem. 
And my mom said, and good for her, she said, no, we don't have a problem. You've got a problem. And so you've got to figure it out, which was good and bad. The bad part was 90 days later, my credit was wrecked and I ended up in a collection agency. And when I got back home the next summer, I spent that summer trying to figure out how to pay off this collection agency and all the you know interest that had accrued on that card and the penalties and all that stuff. The good news was though, I got a really tough lesson. You know, I learned early on just how dangerous credit can be and how to uh, walk before I ran. You know, a lot of people out there, as you guys know, play the credit card reward game. Crap, I play the credit card reward game now, but that's because I pay off my debt in full. But it took me a long time. I think there's a big piece of you got to know yourself first before you play that game. And I definitely, it took me forever to learn how debt really worked and how to not get into debt before I did better. So, I would say in a very circular way, Justin, answering your question, that, that, was, that was when I first realized that this stuff applied to me, when I'm trying to all of a sudden pay off this debt that I'd accidentally accumulated for myself. I think this is such an important topic and coming to that realization when you're in your, was it your young 20s, Joe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 18. Because like so many people think they're making the right money moves. I'm just thinking of the typical money myths like, you know, keep a credit card balance so you get your credit score higher because you're paying it off every month and all these crazy things that kind of get circulated. I kind of want to ask two questions here. Did you think you were making smart money moves? Like when you were doing all this stuff, kind of following the herd, were you like, hell yeah, I'm crushing it. Like this is what I'm supposed to do with my money. Or did you honestly just have absolutely no idea what was going on? And then when you're talking about that inflection point that you had when you having collections agencies come after you and you're in all this debt. Was there some kind of turning point other than like hitting rock bottom? Like, was there a mentor? Did you see, you know, Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman on the TV? Or like, what did that whole process look like mentally? Yeah, those are those are two big ones. For the first question, you know, it's interesting, Cody. I thought, I think the same thing most people think, which is that I don't really have a spending problem. I don't make enough money. And when I get rich, when I get rich, things are going to be better, right? So if I just make a little more money, things are going to be better. I get that next raise, things are going to be better. I get into my next career or into a career, things are going to be better. And I kept thinking that it was all about making more money. It was much, much later that I realized it doesn't matter how much money you make. If you can't manage money, you you could make millions of dollars and it's not going to matter. I mean, look at all the celebrities that we see all the time that get into this huge debt, right? They get into debt. And and these people are making so much money. Sports stars who are buying everything for all these other people. So it isn't about how much money you make. And when I came to that realization, that changed everything for me, that I needed to learn how to manage money. So it wasn't that I was ignorant and it wasn't that I was doing the right thing. I thought that I had a basic problem that was flawed logic, that if I just made more money, these will take care of themselves. Totally not true. On your second question, things came to a head for me much, much later, actually. Sadly, you'd think that after that incident at the Citadel, I would have learned my lesson. (laughs) Heck no. I I just kept doing dumb stuff. And I got myself into debt a few more times. I had a business. So I thought once again, that if I make more money, that I get out of debt. So what I did was with my business, I just bought a bunch of stuff and I bought it on credit. And I kept accumulating credit more and more and more. And then later on, I'm married. I have young twins. I'm a financial planner now. And this was actually rock bottom for me. I'm across town from my office. I'm maybe 40 or 50 miles from my main office. I'm meeting people in this horrible town called Ann Arbor, Michigan, just a rotten town where there's this horrible university, just disgusting. 
but I'm there. I'm there. Spoken. And by the way, I'm a Spartan. If you couldn't tell, Michigan State. Go, go green. But but I'm there meeting clients at a, at an office, and I'm teaching other people how to manage their money, and I'm showing them what to do, and I'm doing none of it myself. And as I'm driving my old, one thing I did really well was I I had a really beat up old car. And frankly, that was because it was all that I could get. A friend of mine actually had told me that they give credit to anybody for cars. So I walked into this car dealership thinking they gave credit to anybody. They wouldn't give, this is how bad it was. They wouldn't give credit to me for a car. So I had this really old Aerostar minivan. The light comes on. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm 50 miles from home and I'm out of gas. I have no gas and I have no money and I have no credit. So I jump in the back of my car, I take that sliding door and I open it up and I'm back by my kids' car seats and I'm going through, I'm going through the floorboards looking for change. And I found, uh, I found, I think like $2 and 40 cents in change. And it was just enough to pull in at home and, and get back home. But it's when I'm, it's when I'm going through the floorboards trying to find change that I'm like, what the hell's wrong with me? Like I've been, I've been slapped upside the head by the universe 57 times. And finally, I've got to be all the way across town from where I live and completely dead broke before I get the wake up call. And that was it. And then to your point then, Cody, then I started thinking about what my smartest clients did. And the thing that my smartest clients did was they had great help in their corner. They had smart people, by the way, and it doesn't have to be a financial advisor, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of bad financial advisors out there, but there's a lot of kick-ass advisors too. But, but they're smart people all around you. And we never ask them all the questions that we should. So I, I started asking people to help me. I had a really smart CPA, a woman named Susan, who I asked for help. And oh my goodness, was she instrumental. When she started explaining to me how taxes really work. And by the way, I'm a financial advisor at this point, right? I don't know anything about anything. And I'm teaching other people. And this woman's teaching me. And I started really digging into books. Like when I couldn't find an advisor locally or somebody locally that, could, that I thought could help me, I really started digging into the library. So at that point, it was people like The Motley Fool and Susie Orman were big at the time. So I dug into how stocks worked through The Motley Fool. And I dug into, you know, the one thing I really like about Susie Orman is she, she talks a lot in her first book about having respect for money. And that's what I needed was some basic respect for money. She talked, I remember, about folding your or, uh, unfolding your bills and lining them all up. And just that tactile process of taking the bills in your wallet and lining them all up and smoothing them out gives you this feeling that you actually have respect for this dollar instead of having it all wadded up in your pocket. So that was probably the big turnaround for me. So you obviously have some knowledge because you're a financial advisor. You got some good people in your corner and you're starting to get a little bruised up from the amount of times life has slapped you around. So you're ready to start making some of those changes. What did those tactically look like? Because you, like you said, you already had the knowledge, but you still weren't doing the actions. So what were those actions look like when you decided to, you know what, I'm getting financially stable? Yeah, I had to, I had to know myself. You know, we talked earlier about the credit card reward game. You know, and I had been lured into some credit cards because of all the cool things, the American Express card at the time, which, by the way, I ended up becoming a spokesperson for American Express later, which I thought was flipping hilarious. They wouldn't allow me to have a credit card. But then later on, I'm one of 12 advisors in the nation who who spoke nationally for them. So I'm like, the joke's on you guys. 
they need to do better, <laughs> needed to do better due diligence. But the thing that I had to do was know that none of that worked for me. And I had to look more inward, like what type of a person am I and how does money work for me individually? And I saw this, by the way, with when I started looking at my most successful clients. And, and by the way, and for anybody listening, it doesn't have to be a client. It can be anybody who's around you, right? Just look at successful people and start asking them, how did you get there? What did you do? And for me, it was, I had to realize that if I had a dollar in my hand, I would spend it. I, I would told, I have a, and I still do. I have a very spender personality. There's always something else that I want. There's something that, that I got to have. And so I had to hide money from myself and hiding money from myself was the number one key to getting where I wanted to go. So what I would do was I changed my direct deposit so that my direct deposit all went into savings. It didn't go into my checking account. For most people, they have their direct deposit go into checking and then they'll take some of their money and they'll move it over to savings. I had it all go into savings. And then I gave myself a very small budget and paid myself out of savings a couple times a month gave myself a paycheck that was much smaller than what I was bringing in. And that was what I was allowed to spend. And then because I do like to buy stuff and I found that I didn't want to, and I had people tell me this, that if, if I got really motivated, you know, for a while, you can live on just straight ramen noodles for like three weeks. You can be all excited, just live on ramen. But at the end of that, you celebrate the fact that you were good for three weeks by buying a 4k big screen TV and you blow the entire budget. So to make sure that you don't have this boom bust lifestyle, I had to give myself also a little treat once in a while. So I had a, I had an amount of money that was my quote allowance that I would use to buy. Cody's been to my old house. I'd used to buy board games. I always had this board game that I really wanted. And so I would treat myself to a board game once every couple months to keep myself on the straight and narrow. But for me, it was, it was knowing me and then making a system that wasn't one that was off the shelf, creating a system that works specifically for me in the way that I spend money. Well, first of all, we had a ton of fun with your hundreds of board games, Joe, <laughs> when I stayed over. So those are some good purchases. Those are well worth it. <laughs> well, I like them. I like board games because of the fact that you're all around a table, you're laughing, you're having fun. We had a blast when you were over, Cody, because it isn't really about the game. It's, it's more about hanging out with a bunch of friends and just laughing, you know, and the game gives you stuff to laugh about, like when Cody's horse comes in last, but just. <laughs> <laughs> That's cruel. Yeah. Don't, don't love the game. Love the players. As they always say. <laughs> Actually, that car racing game we played was not good that night. We had too many people playing that thing. Yeah. That was a little too many people. <laughs> But Joe, something we haven't really talked about and that has become a big part of your journey. I'm actually curious if you kind of had this itch earlier on is entrepreneurship. We're kind of walking through your story now. You're a financial planner, but later on in your story, and we're going to get to that shortly. I mean, entrepreneurship becomes a huge part of your day-to-day life of your money story. Was that something that was always kind of inside you or did that just kind of spring out of nowhere? Yeah, when I became a financial advisor, the system at American Express where I had begun was a franchise system. So I was an accidental entrepreneur because they paid you 1099 income. And because of that, then I had to pay my own expenses. I was I was an independent contractor and then I had to learn entrepreneurship. And by the way, I was horrible at it. I ended up, and this is another part of my story people can hear elsewhere. I even early on, because I, I knew nothing about uh, how taxes work, I got into big trouble with the IRS at the same time, at the beginning of my career. 
And that was where Susan, the CPA, really helped me. It wasn't so much with the credit card debt. It was understanding how taxes worked. But once I became an entrepreneur, it was funny. After that, there were a few instances in my life where I worked for other people. I realized, Cody, that I'm a really crappy employee. I'm a horrible employee. I like working long hours. I also am very um, opinionated about how things should be done. And whenever I had to work with somebody else, it would, the, our heads would clash. So I was really bad at that. And so entrepreneurship really fit me. I also like the fact early on that it was, that it was blue sky. Even though it, was, it wasn't factual, making more money was going to solve everything. It was true that I have a blue sky upside. I can go to work for somebody else and I'm going to make X amount of money per hour or maybe X plus some commission. But there really is kind of a cap on that. But if I own a business with a business, it really is blue sky. I can make as much money as I want. There's, I, can, I can expand the business. I can work with other people. So, man, it, it, it suited me early on, but I started as an accident and fell in love. So you're kind of out on your own. You've started this franchise. You realize you're a little in over your head. And so, like you said, you had this CPA who helped you out with some of those tax situations. And I know you said like you're a bad employee, but did you grow this big enough to where you started to have to build a team around you? And then how did that look like? How did you pick other people who could be good employees for you? Oh, that's such a great question because I picked the wrong people at first. I picked people that were like me. And I also thought that when I when I would just talk about stuff and get excited about stuff, because I tend to get excited about things, that would be really cool and fun. But when you're excited about stuff and you're always thinking out loud about what the next thing is that you could possibly do and you're working for that person, you can't follow that. Like I would come to work every day, Justin, I go, hey, you know what? I was just thinking we might do this or we might do that. Like really diverse stuff. Like, hey, we're going to sell ice cream and sofas. <laughs> and and my, my, my first assistant, Susan, that I hired was like, what the? I, ca I, I can't follow it. So I had to, and I didn't learn this until much later, I had to use a phrase called current thinking. I had to, whenever I talked to my team and I was just thinking out loud, I would have to say, and I still do it today, I say, we're not doing this, guys, but this is just my current thinking. This is what I'm thinking we might do. That gave my team permission to know that, hey, they can tell me not to do this, number one. And then number two, also, they knew they weren't going to have to follow this bizarre thing that Joe just all of a sudden was excited about. So initially, I picked people that were like me that had a lot in common with me. Later on, I figured out two things, not just for people that I hired, but also for my mentors. You know, initially, the mentors and the people that I found to help me were people I thought that were like me. And I also found that that was a mistake. Well, that would work sometimes because they could get in my head. My best mentors, and I'm not the only one that has a problem with this. I think a lot of us do, was finding people who are very, very not like me. Like my favorite episodes of your show is when we're learning from people like, you know, a couple episodes, uh, Grumpus Maximus. Like I, I, I think if Grumpus and I were in a room together, we would have damn near nothing in common. We would have so little in common, yet it was one of my favorite episodes of your show because he looks at the world in such a different way than I do that I find it incredibly fascinating. And what I found is that looking into those blind spots that I have and really not just finding out what my blind spots are, but asking myself how many people think that way and, and, and why people think about things in a different way I do really made me a better negotiator it made me a better communicator and it made me a better boss for the people, for the people that I work with. 
I'll give you an example on our Stacking Benjamins team. The last time we hired people, I hired two engineers to work for us. And one is actually now our head writer. And the other one is, is our scheduler. And a big problem that I've had with the show is that we're making so many shows that the train is never running on time. The train is always behind. And I needed people that were going to make the train run on time. And it was amazing. I, I, while I have kind of an engineer personality, hiring people that were true engineers for this job that has nothing to do with engineering has been fantastic for our show, has been great. So that was a big aha for me was um, over time hiring people that more fit the job and aren't like me than people that I feel like I'm just going to get along with and we're going to have fun. So you just alluded to something that I really wanted to talk about today and kind of the genesis of Stacking Benjamins, the whole brand, how you got started. And I'd love to kind of walk us through tactically because I know we have a lot of people in our audience, regardless of their niche, who's either they're trying to build an audience or they're trying to start a podcast. Could you take us back to maybe the initial idea, some things you maybe wish you did differently, how you got started and yeah, just walk us through that process. Yeah. And I think it's, I think there's a lot of stuff here too, uh, Cody, that transcends podcasting, right? So even people not interested in podcasting, like starting the business in the first place. So when I was 40, I sold my financial planning business, partly because I had this mentor who at American Express, that time it was Ameriprise, wrote a letter resigning from the company. He gave this two week notice. And by the way, that's the kind of place that you don't give two weeks notice you leave at midnight and you take all the client files with you. Like if you remember the movie, Jerry Maguire, you know, where he just <laughs> yeah. takes off with everything. That, that's the type of business that is. So when he gave two weeks notice, it was like, what the hell? And he wrote this nice letter saying that, you know, financial planning was great, but it, but it wasn't really all he wanted to do. He liked it, but he didn't love it. And there were other, other quote mountains he wanted to climb, he said, which was really cool language. But for him, it wasn't just language. He went and climbed Mount Everest twice which was awesome. And he's climbed all the major peaks in the world. He's, he now runs an adventure travel company, even though he's financially independent, right? So it was fascinating to watch Chris just take, and, and I would say if there was an introduction for me to really what financial independence was all about, it was watching Chris take this high money career where he's making cash hand over fist. He's a, he's a single guy with very little few expenses. He was younger than me. Like I'm 40. He was probably 36. And he just waved his middle finger at the entire establishment and career and said, nope, I'm going to go climb mountains. And it wasn't just me. There were a bunch of people who were friends of his that really kind of shook the foundation of what we did. And so I looked at myself at 40 and went, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of like Chris. I like this, but I don't love it. What if I took this money that I've made? Because at that time I was managing about $65 million, which isn't a lot, but it's not small, kind of a medium-sized financial practice. And uh, what if I sold my business and did something I loved instead? So I went back to school to become a high school teacher and a track coach because my wife and I met each other coaching middle school track. It was some of the best years ever. I thought it was really fun. Uh, Teaching is always something that I love doing that I still love. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. So I go back to school And I was bored silly in school, going back to school at 40. It was pretty interesting. By the way, I remember one of my first classes, there's woman Whitney sitting next to me who ended up, she and I did a couple projects together in this class. And I see her class ring (laughs) and and, and talk about feeling old. I'm I'm 40 years old and I'm in there, I'm 41 at this time and and I'm in this class and I'm sitting next to somebody who's 21 years younger than me 
right? And we're in this same class together. I remember seeing her ring. I'm like, oh, that ring has a date on it. I'm like, oh my God, that's her high school class ring. I am so old. This is so, so weird. <laughs> but it was also really, really fun and rejuvenating. And I, I realized then that I, I also like working with people younger than me, that I thought that that was a good time. That was kind of an, an unintentional aha. But I also realized I was bored with these classes. And I had a couple really good professors that taught me, and teachers listening know this, that you spend half your time just teaching to tests and you're also fighting administration. You're not fighting the kids, you're fighting administration. So as I'm learning to become a teacher, I'm also learning that while I like a lot of the things about human behavior and about how people learn and how people process information, I don't really like the institution of school at that point. So I had all these friends that were financial planners and I just reached out to them because I was bored and I started writing their newsletters to clients in, in a t-shirt and shorts. And I really had fun writing. So then I thought, well, maybe I can start writing financial articles for publication then. So I start looking into some financial publications and I, I, I realize a little bit about what I'm doing. And then a friend of mine from Michigan, I was talking to him about this and he had just listened to a podcast all about SEO, about search engine optimization. And he's like, dude, we should... We should totally put our forces together. We'll create a website. We'll do all this great stuff. So we created a website. That website did okay, but that ended up, we had this idea early on for a podcast that I've been listening to podcasts since the beginning. And we thought, hey, as an offshoot of the website, let's make this, let's make this podcast. And uh, I couldn't figure out how, how, as a podcast listener, how we got from the microphones like that we're all sitting at right now how the file went from here to actually reaching somebody's ears. And, and just that little friction was enough to stop us for a year. And you guys are smiling because you know that's the easiest crap ever, right? Like once you figure it out, it's, it, it is not hard. But at the time, I thought, man, whatever black magic that is, I, there's no way that, that I'm going to be able to learn that quickly. So we put it off for a year. If I, and if I had anything we'd do differently, it's that we wouldn't have waited. Because where the blog went okay the podcast initially had a nice upswing and then it, it plateaued after about three years, really plateaued. And then we nuked everything else we were doing. I went to a conference and decided to double down and just do podcasting. And that's when the podcast really took off was when we, we got serious and said, this is all we're going to do. We're just going to make podcasts. And instead of being, instead of being a podcast that's going to be a couple financial guys who are a little bit funny. We're going to make it much more of a comedy show that happens to be about money a little bit. Like we're going to embrace the comedy. We're going to take comedy classes. We're going to get serious about it. Cause you know, we were getting, well, we still get this sometimes that we're not really that funny. We're not as funny as we think we are. <laughs> like I think when you're in comedy, you're always going to get that from people. But, but at the time we seriously had not studied comedy. I'm like, how bad is it that we're doing this show that we're trying to sell as funny and we haven't done any of the stuff. I just went to school to become a teacher, right? And these people take all these classes to become a teacher. Now I'm marketing myself as this, you know, kind of comedic show. And we know nothing about a funny or storytelling or any of that. So we dug back in and created our own curriculum to do that. So I would say if there's takeaways from that for people, you know, number one is every time you open a door, look for the next one that's open. Like I went back to school because I thought it was going to be the thing that I loved. And I could have buried myself in becoming a high school teacher, but it was, 
it was only because I went through that door and I was open to the next one that it actually led from teacher to blog to podcast. I think the takeaway, the takeaway for people is that there had to be multiple doors that opened. There was a door that I thought, which was number one, I don't like where I'm at, right? And I think there's a lot of people that listen to this that think, man, I don't like where I'm at. But the place that I thought I was going wasn't the true destination. It was just step one. So having the guts to do something to get out of that business, I think is, is number one. And building yourself a parachute and an exit strategy. And then second, realizing that that place you think you're going, you maybe haven't done enough research and you don't know where the right place is. So leaving yourself open to be able to find it. You know, it took us three different doors to be able to find it before we, before we found podcasting. I think that was, that was pretty important to us too. We will be right back after this quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. So Netflix and all these different streaming services have shows and movies available depending on your location. So with ExpressVPN, you can choose from almost 100 different countries and have your location based on whatever show or movie you want to watch. There are hundreds of different VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is super fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. It's also available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, even your TV. Plus, it's super easy to use. You can change your location with the click of a button. The other week, my girlfriend and I wanted to watch Harry Potter. It wasn't on any of the US streaming services, but change the location to Canada and boom, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is on the screen. If you use our link right now at expressvpn.com slash show, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So again, that's expressvpn.com slash show to watch your favorite movies, TV shows, as if you are anywhere around the globe at lightning fast speeds. expressvpn.com slash show. So obviously this take that you've got on the podcast is a, it's a different take, right? You're mixing comedy with personal finance. And I, have, I can't imagine that just all came together right away. So if somebody's out there and it, this could be true for any business that they're starting, but if say it's a podcast, what was your method for kind of going out there and experimenting, testing, iterating, like those changes that you made to see like which changes are actually successful, which ones you should stick with and go and you know, which ones you should give up on and just what that process looked like. Yeah. So the first thing I did, you can find in a great book, which is great for any career, Justin, which is a guy named Austin Cleon wrote this great book called Steal Like an Artist. Frankly, it's it's not the book that people are going to think it is when I talk so lovingly about it. It's a little tiny book. You open it up to any page. You don't really read it from start to end. It's but 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 it's very motivational because it says that you don't want to rip people off, but you want to find what you love and you want to make it your own. And what's funny is as I take you through Stacking Benjamins, it's a it's an amalgamation of all the different podcasts that I've heard up to that time and I love. So the first thing is I listen to a bunch of podcasts first. And when I hear people get into podcasting and they haven't listened to other podcasts, I kind of think that that's a mistake because there are so many people that are like you and you get to learn what you like and what you don't like by listening to other people work. And I've heard people say, well, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts because I don't want to rip people off. No, 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 you want to. You, you, you really, really do. And, and if you trust yourself that you're not going to plagiarize, that you're not going to try to be exactly like somebody else, you're going to make it your own, that ripping off different people and remixing it so that it's, that's uniquely your own, you know, is a, is a great place to start. So I had listened to a bunch of podcasts and I knew this, I knew number one, the idea for the podcast came after people told me for a long time that I should have one, like, like, you know, the whole time that I was with American Express and I had worked my way up where I'm speaking on behalf of the company, 
podcasting, you know, starts coming out and people are like, oh, you should totally get one of these. And, uh, and I said, I don't have anything to say that Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey aren't saying. Like, and, and that's number one. I think they're nailing it. Like Ramsey is just knocking the cover off the ball. I don't know what I'd say that he's not saying or that Susie's not saying, number one. And number two is I really, I'm not the kind of person that yells at people about their money. You know, and, and nothing wrong with Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman because they're good at that. They're good at, I think, the accountability piece. But I didn't want that kind of show. In the spirit of Austin Cleon and Stealing Like an Artist, I am mowing my lawn one day and I'm listening to the radio on my headphones and I'm listening to the show called Car Talk. These guys click and clack, these brothers. And for people who don't know Car Talk, it's this NPR show about cars. People call in, they ask questions about their cars and these two brothers with a, with a very heavy, I think it's a, I think it's a New Jersey accent, but I'm not sure, but they are just awesome. And I would listen to them all the time. Don't listen to a ton of radio. I'm listening more to podcasts then, but I would always tune into their show because it was so fun and so light. And I was just having a blast with cars. And as I'm mowing my lawn, I realize I'm not learning anything. Like I'm learning nothing about a car and I'm having a blast. And then all of a sudden, that's when the idea for Stacking Benjamins came, was I want to have a podcast where people don't learn anything about money. I don't really care if they learn about money. They're just kind of enveloped in, in the culture. Because going back to my roots, that's what I really needed. Instead of having my parents sending me out of the room, I would have loved to have had, like you guys had, had Bob on recently talking about how in his culture, they talk about money all the time man, if I had been at a table all the time where people talked about this, how cool would that be? And what if we're, what if we're sharing all the stuff that we messed up and we're not so judgy with other people's money? Like all of a sudden now I'm thinking the opposite of Dave Ramsey, right? And, and, and not Dave Ramsey judgy, but Dave Ramsey as being the final word in money. Instead, we'll be the first word on money and let people find people that, that are, that are smart from there. So that was it. We didn't know what the name of the show was going to be. I just had that idea. And then, I, and then I said, okay, I have ADD something bad. So there's a lot of people like me. There was a show that was a board game podcast called The Dice Tower. And The Dice Tower was a show where it was broken into segments. And what I really liked about the idea of segments was if I didn't like one segment where with other podcasts, I would turn them off if I didn't like what they were talking about with the dice tower, I would fast forward, right? I would just fast forward to the next segment. And I'm like, how great is that? I keep my listener through this segment to the next one and they just see what's coming up next. So this idea of the circus has always been exciting to me about, you got three rings going on. I don't like what's going on in this ring. I'll just watch what's going on in this ring over here. I'll go see the sideshow, go do something else. So if I could have a podcast, that's like a circus, that would be absolutely fantastic. So once again, <laughs> I'm now stealing from, from that. And then I thought about the fact that I love the sense of place that I get. I love the fact that these brothers had an accent when it came to that show. And with my kids at the time who were young, we listened to this show on XM kids called absolutely Mindy and Mindy on her show is this girl who's grounded and she's in her bedroom. She's supposed to be cleaning a room but instead she has a hairbrush and she's pretending it's a microphone and she's having all of her friends call her for a quote satellite radio show that's nationwide. Right. And it really is a satellite radio show that's nationwide. And I always thought listening to that with my kids, like how damn creative was that 
that they would that they would have that she'd have this sense of place. And I felt like I'm I'm with Mindy, and she'd yell at her mom sometimes, you know, that she really is cleaning her room. And people would call in, uh, my kids would call into her show, and she was always so fun and inclusive. And I thought, okay, we need a sense of place. And I thought most podcasters are in mom and dad's basement. They don't want to, they want to pretend they're not. We all want to pretend like we're professional, but let's be real. I mean, Justin's in a hotel lobby right now trying to make sure that the dude is not, that that we don't get the guy who's vacuuming next to him (laughs) while he's doing this. You know, I'm in this little tiny Airbnb in Vermont right now. I don't know where Cody, Cody's probably in mom's basement right now. Like we're all I'm in my mom's kitchen. <laughs> Perfect. So, so we're all in this place that we're pretending that we're not. I said, let's run toward it. Let's make the show from mom's basement. Plus at the time I was living in Texas, there are no basements, right? There's totally no basements in the town that I lived in because the soil's clay and everything moves. So you couldn't have it. So that was kind of an inside fun joke. So we start constructing this stuff. But we did it based on all this uh, creativity I saw around me. But if I didn't tell you where that inspiration came from, I don't think people would ever know it because I took absolutely Mindy and turned it into my mom's basement. My mom's neighbor, Doug, became our announcer guy. The idea for segments came from the Dice Tower. We have this, I'm not supposed to talk about this, but we, uh, we always have a hidden track at the end of our show. I got that from an Xbox podcast called Major Nelson Podcast. That was really fun. I remember I'd listened to Major Nelson's podcast for, I think, nine months. And one time I'm in the shower and I'm listening to it and uh, the podcast ends. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And like a minute goes by and all of a sudden I hear Major Nelson starts talking again. Look, what the, what the hell's going on? What, what, how's he, why did it go to the next episode? I had it set up specifically not to go to the next episode. And then I get out of the shower and I look and I realize they have a hidden track at the end of every damn show. And for nine months, I didn't even know it was there. And I thought that was just some funny Easter egg crap that I said, okay, we're doing that too. So we try to make stuff that's good for longtime listeners and other things that are good for new listeners, you know, but mostly just because we want to play and make it fun for us. We, we really, I also think very strongly that uh, this idea of the science of play is really important. Like, I think we all want to be really serious and we want to have these really serious discussions. I think for people that aren't money nerds, the serious discussion has to begin with a very not serious discussion. Like, I think you got to get them interested first. And so that's, that's who we want to be. We want to be the person that, that instead of shoving people out of the room says, no, 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 come on in, sit down. We're going to have some fun. We're going to tell you how we messed up our money and it's going to be, you're going to have some laughs and then you'll go learn someplace else. So I definitely want to talk about retention for a bit because I know you're being humble here, but I mean, dude, you have hundreds of thousands of listeners that have been coming back for years. And obviously, episode one, you hit play. There's not hundreds of thousands of people listening. Definitely not. I know people in our audience, regardless of their business, they might have, you know, their first 10 fans or their first 100, whatever. Could you talk a little bit? Clearly, you're a tactician. You're talking really in depth about the tactics, the analytics, like how you're setting up the show so people will come back to listening. But how are you actually getting them to return? Like, are you tracking these people? Do you know exactly what percentage of people are coming back? Why are they coming back? I'd just love to pick your brain a little bit about audience building, because I think it's a really tough skill that a lot of people struggle with. Well, I think that no matter what your business is, you need to build an audience, right? I mean, if you're a woodworker, you need people to tell people about your woodworking. So I think it always just comes back to, and the answer is no, we don't track anybody. We don't do any of that. What we do 
this is going to sound really, really simple. We just make a show that we'd want to listen to that we think is really good. <laughs> and if, and if, <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And if we're putting out a show that we think is really good, then I think there's going to be people that come back. But part of it was, you know, it's also a little bit though, Cody, of trusting your gut. Like I feel like a lot of us hedge our bets and I'll tell you that we did at the beginning. So at the start, the show started out. And uh, by the way, to your point about audience building, early on, we had we decided we'd have different contributors on the show. And for two reasons. Number one, I find that a lot of different voices on the show gives me that community feel I'm looking for, like when you're when you're first getting into something. But the second thing also was, you know, we were nobodies in the personal finance space. So the way to build marketing is to have a crap load of people on your show. So we would try to have so a lot of people on our show so they'd talk about being on our show so that we'd actually find some people to listen to us. We were maybe on episode 10 or 11, and one of our contributors couldn't do it anymore. Just realized early on that she was in over her head. A woman that you guys may know, Carrie Nicholson, super smart uh, accounting woman, has, has some fantastic websites great mind, but, but she was, she's like, this is really fun, but I don't have the time to do this. So we got lucky Len Penzo, who's been a contributor of ours for a long time. And at the beginning was already an award-winning blogger. He'd won Plutus awards. He'd won um, CBS money watch, put him on their list of the top 10 uh, single author blogs out there for personal finance. Len said, Hey, I know this new voice, this woman named Paula Pant who would like to, you know, maybe do it. And, and I said, well, I don't know. I don't know, Paul. I know who Paula is. She was, to me, a rock star, and she still is, obviously. But I said, um, I, don't, I don't know, Paula. He goes, let me ask her. Which, by the way, goes back to what that lesson I learned early on about finding smart people. When we found Len Penzo at the beginning, that was, I can truly point to having Len as a contributor to being a lot of good stuff for us. And Len didn't even start off as a contributor with us. We had a different contributor, a guy who's now a state senator in Georgia, Dr. Dean. He was a contributor at the beginning. He was one of my favorite people and a guy who had a a great voice with money, clearly knows a lot about a lot now that he's in public office. He told me, he said, well, I think Len Penzo could join us. This is when we're first starting out. I'm like, are you create? There's no way in hell Len Penzo would join us. This, by the way, to give people an idea of who Len Penzo was at that time, like this would be like right now, if somebody said, hey, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, let's have him as a contributor. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Money Mustache is not going to be a contributor on my show. Like there's no way every week that Pete's going to just come down and be in my mom's basement, right? Be a contributor. Like that that was at the time how big Len was for us. And Dr. Dean goes, well, I know him and do this. I'll give you his email. Tell him that Dr. Dean said, tell him that you have a new show and it's going to be a lot of fun. And then tell him that Dr. Dean's going to be on it. And he said, he's only going to be on if you're not going to be on it. If you're going to be on it, Len, there's no way in hell he'll be on the show. And I'm like, really? That would sell anybody? He goes, he goes, yeah, just put it that way. So I write this letter to this guy, Len. I'm like, Hey Len, you don't know me. I'm Joe starting up this new podcast. Dr. Dean's going to be on it unless you're on it. He said, if you're on it, there's no way in hell he'll be on it. But I thought I'd ask you anyway, because we'd rather have you than him. And Len wrote me back like four minutes later. Well, then I'm on it. That was the first (laughs) thing he wrote. Well, then I'm on your show. So it was Len and Dr. Dean and a couple other people. But I remember Paula, maybe it was episode 12, 
So she came out about episode 10. Episode 12, I think, I wrote an email to everybody on our show because I was super excited because following the numbers, Cody, we had gone from 67 listeners to 69 listeners breaking our all-time record. (laughs) And I was absolutely ecstatic. And what was really cool was that there have been times over the years where we've plateaued and nothing's happening. And I'm talking to Paula about my frustrations. And Paula, I think on three different occasions, has sent me that email back. She goes, I just want you to, to, to reread your own email about how much joy you had in your, you can read it. It's palpable about going from 67 to 69. And at that time, you know, we're at like 26,000 and we haven't moved in four months. And, and you're, and, and she's, and she's saying, uh, yeah, just remember this. And frankly, you know, the numbers that we're at, it still isn't about the numbers. I mean, I can, and I can see a room of 67 people and that's a crap load of people. Like that is a crap. The fact that 67 people would listen to us is absolutely amazing. And we still create the podcast just for one person. Like, and I know you guys do too. You can hear it in your voices when you're talking, you're doing it for you and you're doing it to put out a show that you really like and that you enjoy. I would like to say there's more magic. I would guess the only, the the really pivotal point was I was blogging and I was podcasting and I was working, you know, doing some writing for other people. I was doing all these different things. And I went to an industry conference. And I'll tell everybody out there, if you're not going to conferences in your industry, you're really missing out. Because the idea of getting together with like-minded people that do the same thing you do is, is such a big key. I'm at this conference called Podcast Movement. And one of my heroes is on stage, a guy who has a show called 99% Invisible, Roman Mars. And Roman Mars is walking through how he makes 99% visible. And he's talking about how they have this six-week production schedule and about how they write the shows out and about how they send these people out to get these audio from all these different places. And I'm sitting in the front row with a mutual friend of ours, a guy, Roger Whitney. You guys know Roger, the retirement Mm -hmm. answer man. Roger and I are sitting in the front row and I'm taking notes on my iPad and I wrote down because I would get kind of snarky about our numbers And also about some of the shows that were, quote, beating us, right? I'd look at the iTunes reviews like everybody else, the iTunes charts, and I'm like, that show sucks and they're beating me. That show sucks and they're beating me. And I'd go through the charts and I'm all jealous. And I actually wrote down, you have the ranking you deserve. Because I realized where I thought I was professional, I was nowhere near as professional as Roman Mars was. And then I remember sitting in the hallway after that and going, what is Roman Mars doing that I'm not doing? Number one, he's only podcasting. Number two, he's completely leaned into what his show was. At that time, we're like, yeah, we're kind of funny, but we're also want to be taken seriously. You know, we want to have our cake and eat it too, as mom says. And I actually sat back and went, yeah, we got to embrace the comedy. Forget being serious. I don't care if people think we're serious. We have to embrace the comedy, number one. Number two is we got to get serious about the fact that we are in mom's basement. Like we have to, this, this idea that we have a sense of place, we got to double down on it. I got to quit blogging, got to quit doing this extra stuff. We had at that time, one show a week and two kind of half shows a week. We have to have three solid shows a week. And then I have to start creating this team of people that I work with that are going to also double down. We have to change out our theme music. We got to make it more like the tonight show. It's got to be snappy at the top. We got to give Doug a bigger role. So I I made this whole list. And I remember we were driving from Dallas where the conference was back to Texarkana about two and a half hours. And my daughter was with us. 
And for two and a half hours, I explained to my daughter all the changes we were going to make to the Stacking Benjamin show at that point. Like we were seriously going to blow it up. So we did, we blew it up. And guess what happened? We lost a third of our listeners (laughs) immediately. And I got so much freaking hate mail. I got so much hate mail. I I had people saying, you just ruined my favorite show. This show is awful. I don't know what the hell you're doing, but this is just, this is absolutely rotten. And, and I wrote back to people and I would say, yeah, I think it's rotten too. Cause we totally weren't good at the tonight show feel about being much more deliberate about the comedy. The comedy wasn't good. That's what, that's the point when we went back to quote school and started taking classes. Like we, we so embraced it, but we weren't good at any of it, but I had to, I had to keep believing that that was going to be good. And, and I'll tell you, it was the next two and a half months were horrible everything was horrible. And then, man, when it turned, it turned. You can see in our growth then the hockey stick. Like when, when we finally got it and, and we found our groove, that's when the awards started coming. That's when, the, that, that's when people started coming. I mean, and when it came, it, it, it came fast. So at about two and a half months, we were down a third. Our audience was down a third. By five and a half, five and a half, maybe six months, we were back up to the same spot we were. We doubled our audience then in the next two months. And two months later, our audience was double what the size it was before we made the changes. And then it, it just kept growing very quickly then for a while from there. Well, Joe, it's so awesome to have you coming on the show and breaking down exactly the science behind how you built this podcast. And it's also cool just to hear you, the passion you have in your voice and this idea of how you're making financial literacy so much more approachable to so many people So thank you so much for all that. But at the same time, we obviously didn't get to cover every single thing. You obviously have a ton of great content out there that you've been building for years. And so people who are wanting to get more of that, where is the best place for them to go? I mean, you can find us at uh, stackybedjamins.com. The show is out three times a week. So after they get done listening to the Fi show, they can come over and hear us. Just realize they're going to learn a lot listening to you guys. I think, especially when we get people directly, maybe not like a show like the Fi Show, but people that come directly from Dave Ramsey, for some people, it's cold water in their face. We've had people tell us at the beginning, they're like, I listened to your first show. I had no idea what the hell to do because people come in with these expectations and we, we don't do any of that stuff. We have another show that's a lot of fun called Money with Friends that another friend of ours, Bobby Rebell, works on with me, where we just take financial headlines. It's 15 minutes a day, six days a week, and we break down financial headlines. Like the Fed said that they're lowering interest rates. What does that mean? What the hell does that have to do with me? So we try to find a financial headline every day and then walk through it, read a little bit of it, and then hash it out. What does this really mean? So that's our baby show that we're having a lot of fun with now, too. Awesome. Well, everyone definitely go check out both of those shows because Joe is just crushing it and spending hours. I mean, Joe, when we were at your house, we were up till 3 a.m. listening to the episode before it was going out the next day. It was like, I was like, dang, this guy is working hard. And I think you're so right. Like you do create the show that you want to hear. Because I know me anyway, and Justin, like we are, we like hearing the tactical stuff. Like we like doing the deep dive, but then you like listening to the comedy. So yeah, definitely once you're done listening to the Fosh Show, head on over to Stacking Benjamins and or Money with Friends. Both of them are great. But Joe, something we like to ask all of our guests is what is your number one tip for folks on that path to financial independence? Oh, my number one tip is automate it. The number one key for me and the number one key, I know there's no off the shelf number one way, but man, I don't know anybody who got there without automating it. Like once you come across some money, whether you cut your cable or you get a raise or whatever it is, 
automate it, take it and have that money and hide it so that it automatically goes where it's supposed to go. Because you only have so many brain cells where you can think about stuff, Cody, as you know, you can't think about everything. And so if I can keep my focus on the podcast and the stuff I like, and I'm automatically getting wealthy at the same time, that I think is, is a key ingredient to success. All right, Joe, we almost have you out of here, but we can't let your podcast be the only one that has some fun. So that's why we have the wild card question. <laughs> I knew this was go, boy. <laughs> it's one that, you know, I didn't prepare for. Cody didn't prepare for. So uh, you want to take a roll with it? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we ask these questions, you know, we don't know if we're going to get in a good answer, but I'm really hoping you got something here for me, Joe. So we think about board games and they're supposed to be these harmless little things. They're fun. Get some people together. But sometimes board games can get pretty heated. I'm hoping you've got a good story about where something really got heated during a board game. There was some kind of just, you know, big tension, a fight breaks out over a board game. So there, there is a game called Tammany Hall. And, and Tammany Hall is about politics in America around the turn of the, the century, 1900, by the way, not 2000. And so all of these corrupt politics you have during the game, you've got immigrants coming off the boat. And by the way, you've immigrants from all these different countries and they naturally want to go to their neighborhoods. But as a politician, everybody plays a part of a politician. You're trying to get the immigrants to go to your neighborhood so that you can then control their votes, right? The game is played over three years and it's all about corrupt politics. And if you've got my back, I've got yours. And you, you build up these, uh, these little chits of goodwill with different immigrant groups. And also you have these precincts around the board. So you're trying to get influence around the board. I had heard, Justin, that this game was pure evil. Because as the game goes on, you have to find a time to stab the other people in the back. Because you and I, like as an example, it's you, me, and Cody, and we're all in what's called a ward. We're all in this one district of the board together. And you and I have a discussion where, where we say, okay, Justin, you back me to beat Cody in this area. And then in this other ward across the board, I'll back you to beat Cody in that area. And Cody, by the way, sitting right there listening to us gang up on him. And, and he's getting angry because we're doing this. Well, the, the funny thing is you make these agreements, but you don't have to follow them, right? And then you have these votes and the votes are with your hand closed. Everybody takes these chits, they put them in their hand and they close their hand, these little wooden markers, and then you turn them over and that's the votes that you have. So anyway, so, that, so that's kind of the setup. First time I played it, we play three years. The first year, the first game I played, I thought this game's not that mean. By the end of the second year, I'm like, these people kind of suck. By the end of the game, I'm like, this is the most brutal. I hate everybody at this effing table. You guys are all a bunch of jerks. So I'm playing this game with my brother and my nephew. My nephew's maybe 16 at the time. And uh, he and I have this back and forth where he's going to help me in one ward and I'm going to help him in another. Beat his dad, right? And he's all excited because Uncle Joe's going to help him beat his dad. And so he helps me win my district. We get to the other side of the board and it's near the end of the game so I realized the only way for me to win the game is to stab my nephew in the back, right? So he knows that I'm not going to put many of these little wooden chips in my hand for this particular election, but I fill my hand full of chips and I, I close my hand and it turns over and my nephew, it takes him a second. He's like, oh, oh, oh. and then he realizes that his uncle Joe has just stabbed him in the effing back so hard. <laughs> And I've never had a game, Justin, where I was sure I was going to see somebody cry 
like I did then. He he was so unbelievably mad. He he didn't do the monopoly flip the table thing, but he got up and went in the other room and he wouldn't come back. We couldn't finish the game because he was so pissed at me <laughs> that, that he that he wasn't going to come back. It was awful. I don't think I played that game since because the game is just evil. <laughs> Well, let's definitely not play that game, Joe, once we hang out, once this whole COVID thing is over with and we're down in the basement again playing some board games. We're not playing Tammany Hall. <laughs> we'll stick to horse and car racing. Yeah, man, brothers. That was fun. The horse <laughs> racing game especially was fun. Absolutely, man. Well, again, we covered a ton today. It was really good getting into your story. I think there are a lot of listeners out there, or at least listeners who know people out there who were in your shoes. You know, they think they're doing the right thing. They get into this credit trouble. They still don't know what they're doing. Maybe they become a financial planner. They still don't know what they're doing. And they're kind of just <laughs> fuddling along and figuring things out. And then finally, they have that turning point. I think just it's just so important to kind of introspectively look and figure out what that turning point is for you, what financial independence means for you. I know it's different for everyone, Joe. You still have admitted that you're a spender. I love how we got into talking about how to build an audience and how Stacking Benjamins got started. So many good little nuggets in here. And yeah, just want to thank you again so much for spending your time with us. Well, thanks a lot, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Justin, good luck with the dude vacuuming. Cody, good luck with mom's place. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. (laughs) This was a really interesting episode for me, Cody, because I got to learn a lot more of Joe's background. I mean, obviously, the podcast is great. A lot of people know him from that. But to get to dig in and hear that origin story, that was really cool for me. What do you think about the episode? Yeah, I've been itching to have Joe on for a while. I know back in, I don't even know what month it was, sometime in 2019, like April, I stayed at his house and I'm like, dude, we got to get you on the Fi show. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And then, I don't know, it just kind of never happened. But I'm glad we could finally get him on and near the end of 2020 here. And what I love about Joe is just the energy he brings to personal finance. Like he has hundreds of thousands of listeners for a reason. This guy is funny. He's bringing energy and he's kind of delivering topics in a way that people want to hear it. Joe has this really broad listener base of people who are like kind of interested in money that maybe want to learn a little bit, but most of the time they're just laughing. They're hearing Joe and his co-host chatting. So I loved the energy that Joe brought to this podcast, talking about kind of his story, how he was able to build audience and how he's able to deliver value to so many people. Yeah, it was also interesting thinking about what went into the decisions and how they created the show as far as like what makes his show different and how he talks about kind of taking pieces and parts from all these different type podcasts, like video game podcasts, board game podcasts, automotive podcasts, like all these different types of podcasts. He took these parts and pieces and it could kind of seem like, oh, maybe this was just random that it's from the basement and that it's the neighbor and all these different pieces. But it was very tactical. Like he really put a ton of thought into why he wanted these things. Even the little secret tracks at the end of the episodes Those are all nuggets that he got from other podcasts that he enjoyed. And he put all that together to make this one cohesive, very interesting podcast. And like we were just saying, Justin, it was really interesting to kind of take it back to early Joe, like fresh out of college Joe and hear his whole story. And what really struck me was the dude who just up and quit when he's like 35 years old as a financial planner. And he's like, you know what? I want to go hike some mountains. And then he goes and hikes nearly every mountain in the world. (laughs) So this guy was just showing Joe that, oh my gosh, there is this path out there that no one's talking about. Like he's seeing a lot of these financial planners who are 65 years old, still working their butts off. They might have a couple of houses and all of these expensive things. But this guy just went out, saved a bunch of money and went straight for the experiences. I think that's something that a lot of people in the financial independence community kind of absorb early on is like, 
there is this whole other world. We have so many more options than the traditional nine to five work for 40 years. Hamster wheel corporate America is telling us. And after that, that just transformed Joe's entire life. And he started to take money a lot more seriously. He admits that he is still a spender, but he kind of puts things in place like automating things, just setting money aside. So he doesn't even have the option to spend it, making sure that he is not the obstacle that is keeping himself from wealth. Because if he knows that he's a spender and if he knows that he's going to just get that paycheck and, you know, buy the next new cool tech toy or, you know, buy a house or a car, whatever that thing might be, he's setting up these blockers intentionally to force him to save money. So I thought that was really cool to kind of get inside the mindset of Joe and how he's transformed over the years. And another thing I hope it does for listeners is help them not be so hard on themselves. I mean, here you have someone who is a financial advisor still living paycheck to paycheck. And I'm sure that people on the outside will be like, oh man, like he's got it all figured out. Like I hear this advice he's giving me. Why am I not doing better? And they don't realize what's going on in his personal life. And that's probably a lot more true than than we realize. We may see people who have expensive cars or have expensive things or even people who are really knowledgeable about something. That doesn't mean that they're actually using that advice. That doesn't mean that they're financially stable enough to have what they have. So don't just look out there and see things and and judge yourself based on you not being there because the story might be a lot different in reality. So that's just kind of a plug for I hope as listeners, when you listen to people talk about personal finance, you hear them talk about the goals they've met, you hear them talk about the expertise they have. Don't get down on yourself. Everybody starts from a different place. And now it's time for the call to action. All right. So the call to action today is directly out of Joe's playbook. And so Joe is talking about how he sources ideas from all of these different mediums, like other podcasts, radio shows, television, whatever that thing might be. And he was going and integrating that into his show, Stacking Benjamins. And even at one point, Justin, he was saying he lost a third of his listeners because he was iterating the show to something that he wanted it to be. So it might not seem like the right move all the time, but the only way you're going to move forward is if you change, assess, and then repeat. So our challenge for you today is to start to look at some other things in your space, no matter what space, no matter what arena you're playing in, start to source some ideas and test them out. And maybe they won't work. We're not going to guarantee that this idea that you're going to implement is going to 2x your business or going to get you that raise, but it might. And that's the key thing is if you don't try to do something different, then nothing is going to change. So start to look at other sources within your space for inspiration and start to implement some of those things into your own craft, into your own career, into your own business. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as we did and want to go through all those show notes and links that are provided, you can find all this information at thefyshow.com slash Joe. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.